Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to History and Technicolor. I am David, the host of the History of England, and my partner in podcastery is Wolf. At History and Technicolor, we discuss our interesting, exciting historical movies. Every episode, one of us will propose a historical movie we'll discuss and we'll mark in two dimensions. So we'll talk about how great a movie is it, and we'll talk about its historical accuracy. Then we'll post it on the History of England website and on Facebook, and you lot got to tell us whether we've done the right thing, what you think, and all the rest of it. So, this week, it's my turn, uh, and I am proposing a movie called A Man for All Seasons. A Man for All Seasons was uh, produced in 1966. It won six Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor. It won seven British Film Academy Awards. It was based on a play by Robert Bold. And it talked, The Man for All Seasons is Thomas More. So Thomas More was a philosopher. He was a famous humanist. He wrote Utopia. And he was also Chancellor of England during the realm of Henry VIII. So this is a, a sort of biopic, a slice of life thing about Thomas More, his relationship with Henry VIII and his death by execution in 1536. So that's what it's about. So why did I, why am I proposing this film Wolf, I can see the look of the question in your eyes. Why, for the love of God, are you proposing this film? No, I actually understand completely why you're proposing it, but but tell tell me what you think. I'm going to tell you anyway. So I saw it when I was a nipper, and I was spellbound with the sense of danger that I found, but also the sense of nobility of its core character, because this is 
uh, as I will explain, hagiography rather than history or hagiography as well as history. Um, now, when I was a nipper, all I wanted to be doing is being outside playing footer or imagining myself at Lords whacking the Australian bowler over a long arm for six or whatever. So there's a thing. The fact that I was thinking about Thomas More was a bit of a success story. When you say nipper, how old? Uh, that's a good question, actually. I do not know. Because actually. it's quite different if you're like five and you're obsessed with Thomas More. Yes. Than if you're like 12. No, I wasn't five. I think 12 is pretty much when everything happened in my life. Okay, yeah. So let's say 12. When we get onto film chats on the history of England, so we've done various film conversations about historical films on the history of England, and A Man for All Seasons is almost always at the top of the list alongside A Lion in Winter. Okay, it's, you know, they're jockeying for position. It's delightfully obscure. I've got two more reasons. The penultimate one is it's delightfully obscure. Here's a man who is killed for a principle that is completely alien to the modern world. But nonetheless, it's about a character who has created one of the greatest works of literature in the English language. Everybody knows the word utopia, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yep. We yes. talked about dystopia, utopia. Did he invent the word? Yes, he okay. made the word. It means no place in Greek, I think. And he is a Catholic saint. He was beatified, if that's the right word, in 1968. That's quite some time after, That is though. quite some I time was, after. I thought he might have been made a saint a little bit. No, not all the time, because obviously cause we just killed him. But the Catholic Church then came in and said, oh, actually, you know, this is, he's a saint, uh, despite the fact that he burnt quite a few Protestants. But anyway, that's, that's another story. And finally, because I loved the acting in it, and this will be an interesting point of debate, so that's why I'm proposing the movie. So now we get to talk about the film as a film, before we talk about historical accuracy later. And the historical accuracy thing, I warn you, I'll probably go for about four or five days. Yes, that's okay. So, you know, we might as well, you, know, you might want to leave, actually, uh, or get yourself a pillow and just, you know, whatever. Uh, so the film's a Sleep film. Sleep like I did during the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that gives us an idea then. So, right, how do you find it as a movie? Okay, so first of all, to clarify, I was actually really interested to watch this, obviously having heard about it for a long time. It clearly is a classic, um, and there's a reason for that. I enjoyed it. I found it interesting. Did you really enjoy it? Are you just making that up? Did you actually find it really boring? I enjoyed it in the sense that one watch was pleasant, enjoyable, um, would not watch again. Right. Um, Purely because cinematically it does have nothing to offer. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it for the story, so I wanted to learn a little bit more about the history. I thought it was an interesting approach. Making having Henry as a minor character is always going to be interesting because mm. most people would be compelled to focus on Henry and then try and do a really good Thomas More in the background. Yeah, that was interesting. And it's I, quite interesting. It's quite interesting that we are obsessed with Henry VIII, and I don't quite understand why. If you're trying to talk to yeah. kids about history, there's, there's nothing to say about Thomas More, but you can almost instantly be like. Did you know that we had a king who <laughs> killed a bunch of his wives? Yes, and true. this is how they died. And yeah. the kids are like, wow, wow. He's, he's easier to sell than um, uh, a great humanist, yeah. Yeah, mostly his wives, yeah. to be honest. It's kind of I like made, how that. Can I cry way. now or should I do it? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Anyway, sorry, you were saying so as a film. Purely as a film, mm. it's not brash, which is fine. It's The film embodies Thomas More, and the way that he carries himself is really how the film carries itself, mm. which is a compliment to the film, but that means that if you really aren't completely engaged with it, it it's a bit slow. Yeah, it's a bit it, slow. I honestly really feel the age of the movie. I feel the period of time that it was made, which is never a criticism, really, but some films can really stand up 
uh, years later and you think to yourself, wow, I almost can't believe that was made so long ago because it feels so fresh. This yeah. movie does not feel fresh. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I've... My criticism is not that the movie is like slow or what it chooses to focus on. Its topic is interesting. It's clearly great that it focuses on Thomas. And I definitely didn't register that Henry was going to be in it so little <laughs> when I started watching it. Wolseley to disappear like yes. 10 minutes in. Yeah, Orson Welles. Um, yeah, especially when, because Orson Welles is on the, he sold as like, the third biggest name in the film. Yeah, okay, it's awesome, isn't it? But then he's, he's yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, but, yeah. Then he, but then he's gone. That's why you don't have to compliment when I crack great jokes. Just yeah, move on. Well, I feel like I should, <laughs> and I'll continue to do so. You're a very nice man. Of I hope you nice know man. that I'm sincere. <laughs> and I'm not laughing now, but that's only because of the awkwardness yes. of being on the podcast. I'll laugh Obviously. about it later. Okay, my way you're to laughing work. inside. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I just think, if I'm, if I'm truthfully honest, really feels like it's from a different era. Is uh, that because of the way it's shot, or because of the theme? Or I think it's. Of... I think it's the way that it's shot. I think it's the costumes. I think it's the colouring, the makeup, the approach to acting. It's as we said in the last one. It's very theatrical. You can tell it's made for the the stage, and that carries through <clears> to the movie. The sets aren't interesting to look at. The scenery mm. isn't interesting to look at. There's no cinematography of really any type. The camera just watches the actors and they do their thing, which is mm. one approach, which is fine. But it just means that it doesn't really lend itself to captivating you visually. Hmm. You have to be completely captured by the performances. So yeah. it's becomes a little bit harder, especially if you maybe are less engaged with that section of history, hmm. or maybe you don't completely um, connect with Thomas's kind so of that's quite ideological yes. viewpoint. How did you connect with Thomas then? Because I agree with you. You absolutely have to be engaged with the characters for it to be interesting. Because there's there's nothing much else. There is some, but you know I agree with you. So how did you feel about Thomas? It's obviously really frustrating because you watch him condemn himself to death, mm. and you watch him abandon his family. You watch him bring ruin upon his house. And you're just really begging him to just do what everyone else is telling him to do and, and not do it. And I understand, I, I really do understand why he would n- not bow to them. And I, I can I can respect it, but there's also a certain amount of me that's like, okay, so like, everybody else has to suffer for you. So there are two things I want to pick up. Okay, because I think that's a really interesting uh, point. First of all, one of the reasons I realise that I like this film so much is that I believe theatre is a far superior art form to film. Gulp. Yeah. <laughs> we are on a film podcast episode. I love film, dearly. Theatre requires you to engage. It requires audience participation Quick to question. succeed. Do you think that you would prefer this on the stage? I think I would like it equally well. There are some things that happen in this film that you couldn't do on the stage, but I accept your core point very much, actually. This is kind of like a play on a film. And so I like this because it is giving you no more than the bare essentials of background, although it does do some. You have to engage with it. You're not distracted by the flummery, the is it perfectly represented. You have to engage with the story and the people. Well, that is my argument. It's why I quite like it. The second point about back when it was made, the story is about the nobility of what he does. Yes. The whole story is about the death for his conscience and his courage. So what we're saying is that maybe that attribute 
is no longer attractive. Yeah, we're more pragmatic than we were. So, so I think that is years ago. I actually like that element of the story. I'm definitely interested by it, and I can I can ignore some of the clunky bits and the fact that really characterization outside of Thomas and arguably Henry, there's very little. I did feel at times really like the female characters in particular were completely on the outskirts. Yeah. And I kept thinking, wait, what's this being played to? Like, why is Thomas suddenly like shouting at his wife when she's really not done anything like not only does she not have a voice in the movie and his family don't they're just there to cause him like a distraction and Mm -hmm. they're like his maybe one out so he does have to like consider them but it's always how does thomas think about them not like what do they do at the end of the movie we have no idea what happens to them i I don't really know like it's a film about thomas and everybody else around like they something terrible could happen to them or they might something great might happen and that they live on and stuff but the movie doesn't care. It doesn't want to no. tell us anything about that. And I just still think that even in like the mid-60s, mm. that's still outdated. With his wife, I think that is partly because that's what the relationship with his wife was. And that's one of the criticisms I would have of when we get to history a bit. Well, do it now. Biographers always end up liking Thomas More because he's kind of, you know, he's the Archbishop of Banterbury, actually. he He's a bit of a kidder. He makes jokes. He, you know, he larks about. And he has a very famous reputation of being very advanced in his attitude to women for the 16th century. Okay. Because his daughter Meg, who he has a very close relationship with, he gives a very a proper education to all his children, including his, his girls. He doesn't make any dis- distinction. And that's very unusual in the 16th century. And his attitudes towards education were really pretty revolutionary. His relationship with his wife is always seen as a bit jokey and, you know... He talks down to her a bit, but, you know, it's all a bit kiddie. Actually, his relationship with his wife is hideous. So his previous wife, Jane, he's, this is his second wife in the film, at one stage, he gives her a bunch of fake jewellery, watches her glory in the fact that he's, he's given her this uh, jewellery, and then reveals to everybody that it's fake and laughs at her credulity. Classic. Now, that's not... We've all accidentally... <laughs> we've all accidentally done You know, it. and to me... This this character of Thomas that we have historically, one that is sainted, is much more flawed than actually he is presented to as in the film, where the, I think the film is trying to present him as a very noble, in a very forward-thinking, very principled character. Uh, just slightly in terms of history, can you just explain to me what the Lord Chancellor of the Realm's role okay. was? It's a broadly legal one. It's the head of the legal system, essentially. He does accept the title, though, doesn't he? He does. Because a lot of the time I kept being like, I feel like a lot of this is happening because you still don't know how to make up your mind and you accept it and then you try and refuse the title. You try not to fulfil the role of your... I'm just... It's a fascinating conversation because the way he is viewed in history has changed a lot, I think, and you're you're absolutely nailing... Which I'm I'm looking forward to. Should we finish off the movie? Yeah, all I wanted to say about the film is that... What I'm saying about like the way the film treats its female characters, I'm happy to ignore. Yeah. I, I'm not looking for yeah, so. how women were treated at that time. Obviously, I'm not looking for it to be entirely inaccurate, but they can be given a voice, and they yeah. are to some extent. But like you're already saying to me that Meg is far more important than yeah. the film bothers to show me. Right. So if it's happy to put Henry to the side... The, the movie's pretty bold. It's already got a new approach. Like, it could mm. build that family unit a little bit more. Uh, they're really just background pieces. They, they have no significance. And I just think that this is all kind of building towards um, it being not particularly successful on a cinematic level. Right. It, it doesn't... And 
obviously from the time and stuff, and I'm not looking for like I'm not looking for lavish, but as you can tell when we talked about Amadeus, yeah, a load of the success, a load of the enjoyment we're getting from that movie is the scenery, yeah, the the dress, everything. I when I watch this, none of that draws me in, and maybe that's because it's really old. But I feel like it all looks quite dated. Yeah, I feel like it's sort of almost minimalist approach. It is. I mean, and I wouldn't wouldn't disagree there. I happen to like that and don't find that a problem. But I agree that it's a quite theatrical. The the other thing I I think works very well in the film, okay. but I suspect you don't, is the acting. So for me, I mean, the cast is a, is astounding. You've got um, I wrote them down here: Susanna York as Meg, Paul Schofield as Thomas More, Colin Blakely as Matthew, um, Robert Shaw as is the perfect Henry VIII. Robert Shaw is. The perfect... Should I say that one more time? Robert Shaw is the perfect Henry VIII. He has him nailed. Uh, John Hurt, as Richard Rich, is just brilliant. You see his character decline the desperation between his ambition and his desire to do the right thing and be connected with the person he admires and his failure to do so. And the way that's then represented in the clothes he wears. And, I mean, he, I think he acts it beautifully. Robert Shaw is a lovely bit. They, they come up in the boat... And they arrive at Thomas's house, supposedly at Chelsea. And actually, although we're talking about the, cin- the lack of cinematic quality to it, everything that is there is beautifully done. The fact that they could row up the river, that they land on a muddy bank in front of the house, is beautiful. I feel as though you are there in Tudor England, because that's exactly how it's be. Henry jumps off the boat. He's got all his gaudily covered courtiers in the background. He jumps in the mud, and he's stuck, and his feet go in the mud in his nice golden shoes, and he stops. And everybody looks at him and wonders what to do. Then he decides he's going to make a joke of it and he laughs outroariously. Everybody laughs with him and they all jump into the mud after him. It is a moment that is absolutely how it would have been. And Henry dominates the film even though he is not there, or I think he does. You never forget him. You've only got one scene, but the way he treats Thomas defines everybody else then moves around that figure. And that discussion with Thomas, that this is the divorce, this is what I have, that I must have it, that you are blocking me. And even though you never see him again... Well, you see him once more. Yeah, you see him once more, don't you? But he's not as though you're not having contretemps between Henry and Thomas, because you don't need to. And, and I do agree, although they show him that second time, yeah. and they show him missing Thomas, and they show him yeah. having guilt... They try and convey all of this in a little moment, and then they never go back to it. Mm. And I'm like, wait, what are you saying? Now I need to know. Before, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have worried. I'd assume yeah. he, he didn't care. But you're trying to show me that he cares, but mm. you also don't really want to show me how he feels about all of this. And because that is quintessential. That is absolutely Henry VIII. Okay. Here is a man who kills almost all of his friends. So he is a man entirely capable of thinking, oh, it's a shame Thomas isn't here. You killed him, sir. That is the kind of guy you're talking about here. Yes. Anyway, I mean, I love the actors, but I can see that it is very character actor, is it? I'm pretty captivated by the actors. Mm. It's really that I just feel like the dressing of everything around it. If I watched it on the stage, it, it would be just as good. I basically feel that like the movie adds nothing. Yeah, I don't go quite as far as you do. I do think there is some stuff. Uh, the boat scenes, as I say, are very good. I think actually Thomas' house is very good. So I think there is some colour there. Lawrence Take of Arabia has made, what, a couple of years from this? Yeah. So it's almost the same time. It must only be a couple of years yeah. off. And that movie screams yes. cinema. In every single shot of that movie, obviously their approach is to be a little bit quieter, maybe more in line with mm. Thomas 
journalist and focus on what he's saying, I just feel like it's not really mm. uh, using the medium in yeah. in the best way that it can. Okay, obviously, right. I know. I just have yeah. some reservations about. I it. I understand. It, yeah, it, no, I certainly agree that it's, it didn't click. It's mainly theory. So, anything else that we should talk about? One of the things I quite like about the film is that there is some humour, and there's a lovely line: "Richard, it profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world." but for Wales. Now, I've often thought, you know, if I was Welsh, I'd object to that line because, of course, Welsh, Wales is far more important than the whole world. But, you know, there are some good lines in there. Actually, that line is historical. Do we really think anybody, like, at that moment in their life, is that witty to be like, gonna get you. <laughs> oh, boy, history's gonna remember me. Well, that is the thing about Thomas More. You, you are talking about... A very, very intelligent man. He is capable of having delivered those lines. Well, it's very good. I, yeah. I, I'm definitely I mean, impressed if he did that. Indeed. Just before his death. The big denouement, the trial, I thought actually that could have been done better because what actually happens in the trials, there are five charges against Thomas, not just the one, and he destroys them on four of them. So they have to right. say, I'm sorry, yes, you're absolutely right. These charges that we have made cannot stand because he's a brilliant lawyer and I don't, you don't get that it would have complicated the story I guess is why they decided not to do it he's so confident he's like there's no way they can yeah. kill me I know exactly what I'm doing and then one guy turns up and he's like oh great it's that it's that wimp from the beginning of the movie and this guy's like lies once and he's like no, you never said that. And then he's like, oh, great, I'm done. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm just like... A little bit naive. Obviously, I think what they're trying to show you is that he was defeated by illegitimate means. He was not outsmarted, really. It was just people cheated. And also, the movie does not give me the impression of mm. the general public. The movie it just feels quite um, narrow in its focus. Yeah. I don't really get a lot of the time, the place, the other historical events happening, mm. and how people view Thomas. It would be really interesting to know if the general public at that time really did not want him to die. Well, the general public at the time, the, the king was close to a godlike figure. You know, the king is about to take England away from a, a thousand-year allegiance to the to the Pope. And broadly speaking, this is the pilgrimage of grace, but broadly speaking, England will go, you're changing our religion, you're changing this allegiance that we've been told for a thousand, hundreds of years is absolutely essential. All right then, king. You know, essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, there'll be Catholics yeah, jumping yeah. up and down the fury all around. The, but that's what happened. So if the king says Thomas has got to die, most English would think Thomas must die. There's, you know, there's no playing yeah. to the gallery in the way that... Rich Actually, interesting enough, he's probably caught out more than just cheating. So the story is, you're absolutely right, in the film, the way it's presented is that Richard Rich is this weak man who is suborned by the evil Thomas Cromwell into lying in court perjuring himself and therefore condemning more to death it's probably not what happened it's just as likely that what rich does is he tricks thomas into a conversation about legal cases so where you where you are allowed to stand outside the law and put cases that would be illegal normally what rich does is put some cases to him what would it be what would the legal position be if parliament was to make henry head of the church and Moore says, well, he's understanding the normal rules don't apply because that's what the way it works. In that situation, Parliament would not have the right to make Henry the head of the church because the church is itself entire and indivisible and Henry has no So do you think authority. he got outsmarted? So he got outsmarted. By but the Richard movie Rich. doesn't really show that, does it? Because the movie's job is hagiography. Okay. You know, it's creating a saint in Thomas More. And it wants... The other flaw in the movie, historically, is that... Um, it kind of presents Thomas as dying for individual right of individual conscience. 
that this is a modern theme. A man must be able to decide what his conscience believes. So there are some lines in it, because what what matters is that I believe it. Um, that's what he says. In matters of conscience, the loyal subject is more bounden to be loyal to his conscience than any other thing. That even a, this isn't what Thomas More died for. That's what the film says he dies for, the right of the man to make his own decision. Thomas More died for the right of the Catholic Church to decide what you should think. Okay. He died for an extremely esoteric thing, which is the church is supreme in its own area of competence and that the king has no right to intervene in that area. King can decide what he likes about succession and all the rest of it. That's up to him. But essentially, the Catholic church is indivisible across Christendom. One bit of it, i.e. England, cannot decide to to secede. That's what he dies for. But that's... That's something that we just think, oh, you know, why would you die for that? Um, and so what the film does is create, talk, turn it into a matter of individual liberty of conscience, because that's a theme we would understand. But okay. clearly even that, we, you're not that impressive anyway. No, I do, but I definitely find it interesting that they, that the kind of that's their goal and that they yeah. get converted. Because actually some of the stuff that you're telling me sounds really exciting. Mm. I'd happily watch. Right. That, but they choose to like not include that. But I mean, that comes back to the point we were talking about earlier about the way that Thomas More's reputation has changed over time. Because Thomas is a very he's a genius and he's a very attractive genius. He's witty. His criticisms of the church are very sharp. Are very much about you must reform, do a better job. Uh, you're too rich. You're not thinking enough about the people. His views on education are very progressive. He's a very witty, thoughtful, humane kind of man. He writes the fantastic works the utopia is one we've all heard of but he his output is amazing through his life so i did warn you you might have to get yourself pillow the way he is presented as has been presented in history as a kind of protestant before the protestant reformation although he absolutely wasn't but he's interested in education he's interested in freedom of thought he's a very fair man you know he's out of his time this is a this is an outstanding man and that's the way he's been perceived for much of his history but there are some things against that which don't come out in this film at all. So he burns heretics. He pursues heretics, Protestants, essentially. He even stands accused of having beaten them himself in his garden, but I think that's probably <laughs> not true. But that's problematic. His attitude to his wife, as I've related, is really not as attractive as um, his humour has been presented. Especially for a saint. Especially for a saint. But I think it's because he's martyrdom. Yes. Because he does die for his faith. You know, there's no two ways about it. And for that, I think that is why he's made a saint. But I think what I'm saying is that these days we tend to see Thomas More as a much more complex figure. One more thing on that is that I think you were saying about this thing about being Chancellor. Thomas More presents himself as a disinterested political figure. He writes letters to his daughter Meg which say, I'm unwilling to be Chancellor, but it's my duty to do it, so I will do it. And it's the story is that Henry sells him short. Henry agrees... I won't involve you in the divorce. And then he cheats, kills him. It's okay. very dicey. Why did he become chancellor? He would argue it's because it is the duty of the, the intellectual man that's part of humanism's creed that you need to help the prince. It's his duty to do it. But it's a bit of a thin argument. You know, if you don't like politics, if you don't want to make these compromises, don't go into politics. Do you also think that Thomas would actually have been able to do some good? But uh, he does that, actually, to a degree, interesting enough, that he only resigns when you get the submission of the clergy. It's quite clear a year before that the divorce is, that Henry's going to make the divorce happen. He stays around for another year, largely because he wants to stamp down as hard as he can on heresy. 
also this story about the fact that Henry VIII sells him out. That's in, in that scene with Henry VIII. It's all about Henry saying, OK, I'll leave you out of it, Thomas. Fine. And the deal is that uh, Henry will leave him, Thomas out of it and Thomas More will not make any pronouncements about the marriage. Thomas More does live up to that, but he writes reams of books after he stops being Chancellor that undermine the legal case for the divorce. So it's not even true to say that Henry was sells he, Thomas More. Do you think that he, his fate was already sealed prior to him writing those books? Or do you think that no. he provided more evidence against himself by doing it? Possible he would still have been killed because he would have been asked to make the oath like everybody else. But the point is that he remains in the public eye through his writing. Yeah. And he remains a public opponent. And it becomes important for Henry to either get Thomas on board and win a great propaganda victory or put him out of his misery. I, I think this is definitely one of my biggest struggles. Like, throughout the whole movie, I'm never really truly on his side because I don't agree with his viewpoint, per se. Right. But also because, like, mm. he, it doesn't really ever feel like he's defending something greater. Yeah. He, he believes that he is. Yeah. But especially because he keeps talking about himself as an individual. She's like, oh, I'm sorry if everyone in my family dies. As long as I go to heaven, this is all that matters. <laughs> and the confusion of him yeah. accepting the role and then giving it up and then losing all the... And that causes problems for his family. Sorry. In the finale, when he talks to yeah. the executioner, am I correct that he forgives the executioner? Mm. And it looks like the executioner doesn't even want to do it. I got this impression that there was like at this in this coda where yeah. was seemingly this executioner represents the people and that maybe there's this feeling that they don't really want Well I think to they're selling a message aren't they that Henry VIII and tyranny that he is trapped Thomas Cromwell is drawn as a very negative character he's all about power and evil is not you know not about transformation of the state and Thomas Cromwell is a much more positive character in my view and I think the implication in the film is that Thomas More is the victim of tyranny and that's why I think you're right. The executioner is doing it against his will. There is a very slight suggestion, historically, in the final sentence that Moore says. He talks about something about maybe we will all meet together in the kingdom of heaven or something along those lines. And there's an, an act of forgiveness in that, which is part of the greatness of the man. But there is also a suggestion that maybe he's come to realise that different religious opinions are here to stay and there's some acceptance. But you're, that's reading a lot into it. Anyway, we should probably conclude. We've talked about all the inaccuracies. In most other ways, it's incredibly accurate. And so that's what I was going to say. Do you think that it presents a standard interpretation of history? I mean, I know that you have this thing about makeup, but by and large, what they wear is, is beautifully done. I think they make a lot of Hampton Court and the way the court works. I think the way they draw this, the relationship between courtiers and the king is a thing of beauty. The characters tend to be cardboard cut out. Nonetheless, Historically speaking, there's a perfect justification for presenting the characters in that way. The train of events, I mean, there's a tiny inaccuracies, but nothing... And and nothing about this at the time would have made audiences think that that was a little bit unusual. This is completely how they knew the story. Uh, Yes. I mean, in the 1960s, Henry VIII was still, by and large, a positive figure. You know, now he's in the orthodoxy is that Henry VIII is a terrible, terrible figure, personally and very negatively viewed. In the 1960s, he was much more viewed as the sort of the saviour, the guy who bought Protestantism and isn't Protestantism a great thing. But the way he was presented, you know, is incredibly radical. Okay. Okay, we so we're going to mark it. Oh dear, this is going to be nasty. So you're going to you mark it as a as a film. Okay, you mark it while I think. <laughs> so I'm going to put it down as I'm going to put it down as a seven because I could watch that film as many times as you cared to show it to me, but I can accept the criticism that it's very theatrical and maybe the reason I love it so much is partly because I love theatre so much. 
The only thing I will say is if you if you genuinely love the yeah. film, if you think that it is perfect in every way, do not rate it down. No, no, because I don't think it's perfect in every way. I love the film, but it's possible to love a film. A second, I mean, so I was going to say six. Yeah, okay. Well, I would thought that's, that's because I think generous. it's it's just because I think it's pretty good, but I'm just not really engaged by it. Yeah. And then historical accuracy. The things that we've talked a lot about, I've warbled on about because I happen to be very interested by it. The truth is that the vast proportion of the film is very accurate, but the inaccuracy is very important. (laughs) You see what I mean? Yes. That the fact that he's presented as dying for liberty of conscience, fundamentally wrong. Okay. So I don't know how to mark. Because that's what the whole film is based on. I would put it as an eighth for historical accuracy in recognition of the fact that most of what you see is beautifully done, I think, in terms of accuracy. I'll agree because I actually couldn't even tell there was historical inaccuracies in it. Yeah. It was really that I just didn't feel like it was bought to the cinema screen in a particularly interesting way. Okay, so we'll go six and eight. As per normal then, let me just take a couple of moments out before we finish this episode to talk about the last episode, Amadeus, and the discussion on Facebook, which, as always, was great. I love it. Amadeus certainly passed the test. The highest Love It rating so far, 65% of you saying you loved it, even more than Master and Commander, which is, of course, extraordinary, if not actionable. There was, though, just a smidgen of Marmite in that there was a deep division some of you who really, really hated it. The wolfy thing came up, and I have some sympathy. My parents back in the day almost choked to death in their outrage at wolfy. So, fair dues. Andrew made the excellent and very well-argued point that Amadeus, in being based on a basically fictional story, gave us no more insight into Mozart's motivation and character. It led to a discussion about historical accuracy in film, which will be a hardy perennial, I think, and I rather found myself changing my view of historical filmmaking and indeed novelists, agreeing with another of Andrew's points that, given Mozart's extraordinary story, why couldn't they have made a brilliant movie that was reasonably accurate, with allowance made only for dramatic requirements? Jennifer then made the point that maybe we should simply be excluding the film from the historical category, that Mozart was a vehicle for the theme of genius. Team Coxon from Australia was carried away by the Whigs, a fair point, while everyone agreed that music was the real winner of the movie. And look, Luke managed to persuade his son to watch the movie with only a couple of turns of the thumbscrews, so we're all winners. And then John came out with a superb Mozart joke, and there aren't too many of those around. Rowena immediately declared she'd be pinching it, and therefore so will I. So, according to John... A week or two after Mozart died, strange sounds started coming up from the grave. The mayor came along to have a listen, and he says that as far as he can make it out, it's Lacrimosa playing backwards, which is odd. While this goes on, sometime later, Ina Kleinach music starts coming out from the pit, also backwards. Nobody can figure out what's going on. At which point, Salieri speaks up and says, Ah, it's OK, he's just decomposing. Quality, John. That is quality. Wolf and I will be back, but we will be back not in two weeks' time as normal, but in three weeks' time. Sorry about that. But we'll be back with a 1968 film called Charge of the Light Brigade. By the way, you might like to know that if you go to the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk, there's usually some extra information. And the chart that we're building after every episode with your scores, our history and technical ratings, and the ratings of websites like Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, and so on. So go and have a look. Anyway, now, back in time to A Man for All Seasons.
Great. Thank you very much, uh, Wolf. So that's uh, goodbye from Wolf and I, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the debate. And we'll be putting up it on the website and on Facebook. So go along, tell us what you think, uh, especially since I know so many of you love the movie. And yeah, wish me luck, David. Indeed. Bye bye. Are you not entertained? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.